Hi, Kareem. Welcome to the Rising Executive Podcast. Uh, this is a podcast where we interview some of the world's best startup leaders about leadership, management, and culture. So welcome. Uh, thank you, Karan. Thank you for having me here today. Of course. And for those listening, uh, Kareem is SVP of Engineering at StrongDM, um, and he's managed and led multiple engineering teams in the past. So thanks for joining, Kareem. So just to get right into it, the first thing I would love to just ask you about, uh, you have a very interesting background, um, but just to start, I would love to just hear your perspective on how you've approached cross-functional relationships in the past, right? So with the engineering teams that you've led um, at all of the companies in which you've led them, how have you generally approached uh, building relationships and trust among other cross-functional leaders, such as a head of sales, head of marketing, et cetera? It's a great question. Um, so I think there are going to be a set of uh, relationships that are, are uh, like must-haves, or you'd expect to see them in every uh, well-functioning product uh, uh, development organization. The relationship between engineering and product management is, is one. Uh, the relationship between product and support is another one, especially in the early days of uh, a startup, because most of the uh, support incidents uh, could end up flowing into the engineering team. So finding those points of intersections or those rapports that you can establish to uh, try and solve a common problem is one of the better ways to foster these strong relationships. The next step tends to be as the startup grows and starts having customers and you're investing and go to market, you want to broaden that horizon and establish relationships with the head of marketing, the head of sales, and again, the the approach I, I try to adhere to is try to find a problem that's in common to both organizations and work collaboratively on solving it. For example, in sales, it could be, how do we crack the enterprise segment? How do we move from small customer base today or uh, size-wise to uh, cracking uh, Fortune uh, 100 customers? What do we need to be uh, learning about the product or talking about the product that is different than we are today? With marketing, it tends to be uh, similar initiatives. How do we talk or address a different use cases, talk more about the features uh, engineering is, uh, is, is developing? Um, and in, in my experience, once you latch on these uh, handful of commonalities, then you can work collaboratively with those other organizations to you know, try and get those problems uh, done uh, uh, collectively. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And one thing that I'm curious to hear your perspective on as well is um, building that foundation of trust is obviously incredibly important and you build them through the things that you're saying. Mm -hmm. uh, but when you run into disagreements or conflicts with other functional leaders, uh, how often do you kind of let arguments go for the sake of the relationship? Do you prioritize the relationship over specific conflicts and how do you kind of deal with that as, as an engineering leader? I think conflict is is uh, uh, is, is inevitable uh, for a variety of reasons, and the um, healthy conflict that is. Um, I think the way the best way to diffuse it is to try and answer what is the right thing to do for the customer and the business. Okay, um, and if if that if answering that question is you're unable to resolve. You know the source of the conflict. 90% percent of the time, I found that trying to answer what is right for our customers and the business tends to resolve the uh, the the points of friction. There could be other things that arise, and that is prioritization. Hey, this thing is very important for sales, but maybe not very important for for me as uh, an engineering team to invest in. If those things arise, I think what you want to offer is well, what else can you do, or when can we prioritize that? Like if you know what I'm saying no today 
is that in perpetuity or you know if something else happens down the road maybe you can revisit this decision so you also want to have that open door uh, meaning i'm not locking you out um, assuming the answer was no from my perspective um not locking you out forever but i'm just trying to give you the context in which i operate in i also operate in a world of scarce resources and i'm prioritizing these other things versus this new initiative that you uh, care about and it could go both ways because i might need things from marketing and marketing comes and tells me you know what we care more about lead gen versus some of the things the initiative you're coming up with and what do you point to exactly to make that prioritization decision is it just what's best for the customer, obviously, but is there something even more specific than that, like a strategy document or or something specific that you can point to to tell other functional leaders, like, here's what we agree to the priorities and this is the stuff I'm going to focus on? How do you manage that? Yeah, so it depends on how, you know, your uh, the operating model uh, that you have uh, at your company. If you've got uh, OKRs, you can say, like, hey, this is what I'm focused on, right? Which one of these things should I down prioritize and do you think is the right uh, choice for us to make? versus taking up uh, on this new initiative. Um, if you're not, um, and you're basically working off, especially in engineering, off a roadmap, it's like, hey, these are the five, I think, six things that we're working on presently. Which one should we pause or down prioritize to take this new thing on? And that crystallizes it, okay? Because let's say it's me and the head of sales, okay? And they were like, well, you know what? I actually need all these five things because I can sell more. I'm like, great. So... Hence the conundrum. Like I, we all operate in a world of you know finite resources, and in order for me to help you out, I need to free up some resources because I'm not running with infinite capacity. So I think once you have that uh, dialogue from both sides, like these are things I'm working on, uh, this is what you need. Where does it fit? Then you can uh, have uh, uh, you can make these uh, trade-offs, or you can have a sense of prioritization and also see what the other person is uh, uh, tackling, because you might not have that full exposure to everything happening in sales or everything happening in engineering. So it just develops, gives you more visibility and awareness to what that person is concerned with. Yeah. And how important do you think it is for engineering leaders to understand those other business functions like sales and marketing? Oh, I think it's it's absolutely critical. Ultimately, um, uh, we're all uh, together as a team trying to build a successful business, okay? Um, so to the extent that you understand and know the levers and how the, these things can are interlocked together, um, uh, I find that invaluable. Uh, I'll give you an example. The work that mm -hmm. engineering does does not end when, you know, the last developer commits the last piece of code, okay? It extends far beyond that. How do we take that and market it to uh, prospects, to customers, to new customers? How do we educate the sales team to consume this new product and try and position it in the market? How do we see the results of these activities? Did we make the right bets? Are we seeing the right signals once you know this feature is out? Uh, and how, you know, it's, it's that feedback loop. So making sure that you are connected to especially the go-to-market side of the house uh, is, is very important for understanding really what your product is doing in, in real life, uh, getting that feedback cycle. And I think from my perspective, I also get to see how difficult it is to, especially on, uh, uh, on sales, go try and sell something. It's not easy. Everyone thinks that their product is amazing and it sells itself. Go try do that. Okay. Uh, so it, it, it's, it's reciprocal. Like I get to learn a whole lot, um, uh, from, engaging in uh, with those teams 
And I think they also get to learn a whole lot about how engineering thinks, what do they need, how do we help each other ultimately to, to help create uh, you know, a long-lasting and successful business. Yeah, for sure. I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And that's one thing we talk about internally in our community is the dichotomy between generalists versus specialists. And I think specialists obviously have a key part to play when startups scale. But I think one of the dangers is if you become too hyper-specialized, but you want to be a, lead, a startup leader and executive in the future, you got to make sure that you're not getting so specialized that you don't understand the general business context, right? So is that what you recommend to you know developers on your team who are looking to go into management and leadership positions to make sure that you're not getting too heads down in your function and make sure you kind of step out and like understand the wider business context? Yeah, for sure. I yeah. actually tell every uh, uh, new hire that coming to work in a place like StrongDM or really any startup is an opportunity to understand how to build, not just software, but build a company. And that's very, very hard. I, you know, I worked at Microsoft years ago, and you take lots of things for granted when you work at a very large uh, tech company. You take, hey, they've got legal and finance and marketing and support and a channel. All these things are figured out, okay? Well, none of that exists when you're doing uh, building a new company. Uh, and trying to understand, you know, not to the uh, intimate details of building these things, but at least being aware that this is an opportunity for you to learn and participate into, into this environment is amazing. Um um, on pretty much all engineering teams I've worked on in startups, um, it's not that I push, but I encourage if the engineers have the appetite to do that is, hey, go work closely with uh, this opportunity. They, you know, there's a brewing, uh, interesting sales opportunity or marketing initiative that might need or benefit from someone with technical expertise. Uh, so you can help, you know, move the business forward, but you also learn a whole lot more. Uh, and that gives them that uh, wider aperture and exposes some of the engineers who have the uh, appetite to do that uh, and wanting to do that gives them the ability to observe um, the business from a very, very different context. Yeah. And you mentioned your experience at Microsoft, which is also something I wanted to dig into. So I know you spent a number of years there, which is mm -hmm. obviously Microsoft's a huge corporation, but you've also been spent a number of years at startups. What are the biggest lessons that you've learned from a big company like Microsoft that you use in your journey that you've used in your journey becoming a startup leader that's a good question i mean there's a few i think uh, one of the and that's very difficult to do but one of the uh massive assets that a company like microsoft has is microsoft can package any piece of software push it in a channel and lo and behold it could become a hundred million dollar business like that okay uh, uh, so that's something very, that is very enviable. Um, the ability to connect, uh, and push your software to millions and millions of customers, um, is something that you want to be able to build. And obviously that takes many, many, many years. Um, I've observed that at Microsoft, uh, uh through my career, like, you know, any software I worked on different uh, server products at Microsoft, but one of them is currently known as Microsoft Teams. Seeing that from zero to grow and mushroom um, is a, a hugely uh, a function of Microsoft scale. Okay, uh, and that is something that is pretty important. Uh, I've learned how to build, uh, which is idiosyncratic to Microsoft back then because I was there early in the two thousands. But you know. Building software for millions and millions of consumers is hard. Um, and Microsoft excelled at that. Keep in mind that I was there 20 years ago. So, you know, this is old tech. Yeah. Uh, you package software in a box and ends up being used by, you know, 
millions and millions today it's fairly easy easier but back then it was uh it was it was amazing to to observe and i think i've also learned this is a contra learning um again i you know my time at microsoft are very different than microsoft today but uh there wasn't a whole lot of opportunity to think about what does the customer care or need for that that voice of the customer wasn't there and if there's any big lesson um, that you must apply in a startup is whatever you're doing, whatever you're investing, if you can't prove, not maybe not immediately, but very quickly, that it is in service and benefiting customers, you're wasting your time. And the opportunity cost at a startup is huge because we've got finite resources, capital is the most uh, finite of them all, and time. Um, so just being maniacal about focusing on what provides value to your customers is hugely important. And I don't think I got a whole lot of that at Microsoft. Keep in mind, again, 20 years ago, I was a very senior software developer. So, you know, maybe it happened 17 layers above me, but I didn't see it. Yeah, I'm also curious because one thing that I've heard or I've seen, uh, as companies scale and become more mature, it's just easier for them to get further removed from the customer, especially for executives, right? Uh, so if you're an engineering leader or just, you know, marketing leader or whatever, um, as the company scales, you're you're more managing your team. You're working on internal processes rather than always prioritizing for the customer. Do you think that was a part of it as well as just at big established companies? Uh, you're just a little bit further removed just because of just how much process is involved and how much structure is involved. Or do you think it's just really company to company? It's probably company to company. I don't think any of those large companies are going to tell you they don't care about a customer. You know, everyone is going to say and profess that absolutely. You know, they're always in every meeting and whatnot. It's just hard when you're, I don't know how big Microsoft is now, 100 plus, 200,000. It's hard. Uh, when you're 30 or 40, the decision-making is easy. Um, it's a lot faster. Uh, and I think you're also, the the reality of, what, of the world you live in forces you to make these intentional bets. I have $5 million in the bank. That's it. Yeah. Okay? I, you don't have that existential threat every day at Microsoft or at Amazon. It isn't that you're going to run out of cash. You might slowly decline, but in in a startup, you might be gone in six months, right, or in a year. And uh, therefore, being very intentional about how you make these investments uh, is very important. Yeah, for sure. Um, and just to shift gears a little bit, I really one of the things we talk a lot about on the podcast is team culture. So I'm curious from your perspective, as someone who's run multiple engineering teams, what are the biggest differences in engineering team cultures that you've seen at all of the organizations you've been at? Yeah, that's an interesting question as well. Um, uh, there's a, a few traits that I've seen um, sometimes strongly exhibited in, in teams and some other times not. Uh, one of them is actually the team composition and what defines a team. Some mm -hmm. organizations were very, very, very um, uh, uh, intentional about a team is, you know, four engineers, a product manager, uh, and potentially, I don't know, uh, a lead or a scrum master. Like even the composition uh, was very, very well defined. Uh, and they had their own reasons and motivations to do that. And then the other extreme is actually a team could be two people, one person. It, it really doesn't matter. Like we're going to move quickly and find the right and the smallest set of resources to get the job done. Um, and you need to understand where it's like, 
What traits does your team currently exhibit? Are they the right ones? Do you want to move them from one side to another and take them on a journey? But you need to understand what, what, what these are. Another one tends to be about the specificity of what, are you, what you're about to build. I'll give you an example. Some organizations I worked at uh, needed to get um, a lot of information ahead of making a decision to, to build. Okay. Uh, and some others needed to get just the, the headline. Okay. The headline and where, you know, we're going to make a decision about whether this is worthy of building or not. Sometimes it's very obvious. Uh, but then the engineering teams are going to take the headline and double click it and scope it and work on it versus wanting uh, maybe product or some other team to, def you know, explicitly define what the behavior of this product is. So one is more product heavy. Uh, another is uh, product light uh, with a lot of uh, uh, engineering uh, involvement in scoping and trade-offs with product management. Uh, another I usually like thinking in terms of spectrums. Another spectrum is uh, testing. Some teams have an uh, insane, very, very healthy uh, level of testing, testing everything at the lowest to the highest level from day one. Right? As they're writing the software, they're continuously uh, adding tests. Uh, and some other teams, you find that that mentality or it tends to happen at the end, like I'm going to write the software. This is certainly what I did at Microsoft. I don't advocate that. Um, and oh, we're going to spend you know a few days uh, coming up with a bunch of tests. Um, you need to understand and observe what these uh, uh, you know what these traits are, and you also need as a leader to, to to answer: Are these the right ones? Is this are these the right traits that we need to exhibit today? Or if not, how do I move the team from where they are to where, you know, they need to be across every one of those dimensions? Yeah. One interesting thing you mentioned is how some engineering teams are more product oriented than others. Mm -hmm. For the ones, like, who do you think impacts that culture of whether it's product driven or not? Is it generally the engineering leader? Is it the founder? Is it the CEO? Like, who is the, who are the main stakeholders that create that kind of a culture within an engineering team? Yeah, I think you need a few, a few key ingredients. One, if the product uh, is very technical or the audience tends to be very, very technical, um, then leaning in on some of the engineers to do that work makes sense, okay? Yeah. Um, you know, on the flip side, if the product is very consumer or prosumer friendly, then no, I want to make sure that we've done our homework and we understand the uh, you know UX uh, trade-offs, uh, the ergonomics of this feature. It isn't just going to be how we lay blocks on disk if you're a file system, as an example, right? Um, so the you know the range, whether it's consumer or you know very very technical, is one thing, and the other one is um, the ability of your engineering teams to try and understand what these product trade-offs are. They're not just technical trade-offs. There could be technical trade-offs that result in a uh, end user facing uh, trade-off and being able to either flag them or work with a product management to later on explain to them like, Hey, you know, if we build it that way, the experience looks like a, we build it this other way. It looks like B. Um, typically these trade-offs stem from technical trade-offs which if you've got a highly technical product org, they might get them from day one, uh, or they might rely on the engineers to surface these, uh, these traits. I see. So uh, do you think it's, do you think saying a blanket rule, like it's always more beneficial for engineering teams to be product focused is not an accurate way to say it. You think it's really just dependent on the product and the industry. 
Um, uh, I I think it's a, a if I were you know blanket, I would say yes, but that doesn't mean that you should be making these product decisions. I think it's I great that you you understand, and um, but sometimes you actually need someone who's out there talking to you know the market and customers who is going to come and say actually yeah, that's that's the door we're going to walk through. And you want yeah. that to, to be uh, a product management uh, manager, you, not a, not one hundred percent of the time, but you all, you want your engineering team to have that nuance to say, you know what, I'm going to call uh, Sebastian, who's our head of product, because that's a Sebastian decision. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, and just one last topic, I'm curious to hear your perspective on is around actually budgeting and headcount allocation. Yeah. So I know this is more of a, a technical question, but I'm just curious. Um, to hear your perspective on this. As an engineering leader in your current role, how do you approach knowing how much how, how many people you're going to need for the next year um, and sort of how to use your budget to hire those people? How do you generally approach that process currently? Uh, you know, given the world, we the times we live in, that's a great question. Yeah. Uh, th- there's a few... Uh, a few ways. So you start from typically you start from what you have. So you spend a hundred dollars and you get the ability to spend, I don't know, 10% more. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then you can decide, okay, with that incremental budget, I'm going to go and hire two, three, four, five, however many I think I, I, I want. I, and I've certainly applied that where, you know, the operating budget comes handed by you know, finance or, or CFO uh, to, to the orgs. The other one is to start from a blank sheet of paper. 30 seconds. And um, try to answer how many resources do we truly need to build um, everything in our product ambition, okay? Yeah. So you, you empty your pockets, okay, so to speak. And that becomes a very interesting trade-off. The first one is, do we really need all of that? What are the apps, What are the things on that list that are absolutely like, yes, we want to nail those, Okay. And so that, you know, that puts a little bit of uh, constraints on that wish list because the wish list inevitably is very, very large. Once you have reasonable understanding of what that wish list looks like, the must must do items on there, and you've got some, if you know, eh, on uh, how many resources it would take, then you can start from that perspective. So you look at that list and say, hey, we were going to build A, B, C, D, and, you know, however many features, and I need 25 engineers to do that. I have 17. I'm going to go and ask for eight more. Um, I'm going to go and ask for eight more and I'm going to justify the decision to hire or augment the team because I want to go build these things. Okay. Uh, So it's, it's driven by a business and, you know, I want to build these things because so and you know, these other tangible benefits are going to happen. Our TAM will increase, we'll sell more or our cost uh, of servicing customers will drop, whatever the tangible benefits are, but you just want to package it into uh, a business bouquet. We're spending more, but we're going to get something out of it. And I try, I prefer doing it that way because it makes it um, very transparent why the investments are made. It also makes the choices uh, tangible uh, and concrete at the outset. We're, we want to build this widget because we believe it's going to drive these outcomes and we believe it is important. And therefore, we're going to make a case to invest X dollars to, to make it happen. Yeah, I think that process makes a lot of sense. I think over the last bull run, uh, a lot of companies did not do it that way. It was very much like, let's just double headcount just to double it. Yeah. Um, and I think you're right that like anchor it, anchoring it in business and product decisions is 
definitely a better way to do it. Um, a follow-up question I had, though, is as an engineering leader, how have you seen the trade-off um, between headcount and productivity? Because that's an interesting dichotomy, right? Where it's like a lot of startups think that the more headcount they have, the more productive they will end up. Be, their teams will end up being, uh-huh. and that's not that doesn't always play out. So I'm curious to hear your perspective on it. Um, is a lot of that dependent on leadership? Is a lot of that dependent on uh, the, the founders and CEO? Like, what does productivity always increase as headcount increases? No, yeah, it doesn't. And uh, in fact, I've. Uh, uh, a couple of times I was asked, uh, CEO, hey, you know, we need to double the engineering uh, headcount in the next calendar month. I'm like, great, we can do that. But I tell you, if you measure, and even measuring output is very difficult in engineering. I don't know. What, you know not, they're all vanity metrics. But if you pick whatever vanity metrics you want and look at them pre and post doubling, they're going to be about the same. And the reason is hiring everything uh, spanning the hiring uh, process is very time consuming. Okay. And it's time consuming, not just on a recruiting team that has to source those candidates, but the engineers have to interview those candidates. And, you know, it isn't that every single person we're going to interview, we're going to make an offer to this. There's a yield there. And when times are competitive, your offers aren't going to be automatically accepted. So there's a lot of candidates that you're going to have to interview to land on one. And then, once you hire them, well, you've got to spend some cycles teaching them about, all, you know, this place. What is strong DM? How do I contribute code into this code base? How is it architect? How do I test? So all these things tend to consume time and effort from your existing engineers. Okay. And they're spending time, a lot of time, trying to uh, hire the next set of engineers. And once they do that, they're going to spend even more time trying to get them more productive. So the first year tends to be, if you're doubling headcount, almost a wash. You're doing that to get productivity and additional bandwidth benefits nine, 12 months later. But do you usually see that come in after a year or so? Or do you yes. think, okay, you do? Yeah, absolutely. Unless you're, you know, unless your onboarding is, even if you're, your onboarding is poor, you're going to see that uh, happen much earlier. You're going to find that people will leave, whether it's your existing team because they realize that there's no way we're setting people up for success and I'm being overburdened by helping and teaching someone over and over and over and over again. That's a hiring mistake. Or your new hires are going to realize like, hey, this place just hired me and dropped me out in the ocean with absolutely nothing. I'm out of here. Yeah, that, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I think the point about onboarding also becomes more important there, like you mentioned, right? So it's like the better you onboard, the less time I assume it would take for people to ramp up the productivity. Is that what you've seen as well? Yeah, yeah. yes. Awesome, Kareem. Well, that was my last question. And this has been a great conversation, a lot of great tactical tips for for leaders out there. Um, And I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for hosting me. This was fun. Of course.